Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We're focused on banks. We've got a slew of earnings out from the likes of Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan in particular started out with a bang, but shares have since gone negative. Joining us now is somebody who perhaps isn't entirely surprised by this. Charles Peabody is president of Portales Partners. And Charles, I'm so glad you're joining us today because just Wednesday, you actually downgraded your rating on J.P. Morgan to a neutral from a buy, I believe. Did today's results edify your decision in your view, or did it make you rethink anything? Um, just a quick clarification. I, I went from a neutral to a sell on oh, J.P. Okay. Morgan. Um, yeah. um, listen, I, I, when, you, when you think of the themes that are out there that, that the analysts are espousing to try and get people to buy these banks, there, there are three major themes. One is... Um, buy those banks that have big capital returns. The second is buy those banks that are showing positive operating leverage. And, and the third is buy those banks that have low loan-to-deposit um, ratios because they're not going to be as affected by an increasing deposit beta. And if there's a, a theme that I think is running through the, the weakness in the stocks today, it has to do with the lack of positive operating leverage, which you didn't see at J.P. Morgan, you didn't see at PNC. And that gets back to the fact that revenue growth is starting to slow um, at the margin, and particularly in NII. It's, it's still positive, but if you go back to the first quarter, revenue growth was high single digits. Now it's mid to low single digits. Charles, maybe you could explain yeah. to people your perspective when it comes to the cycle of bank operating earnings and how they go through cycles at times of rising interest rates. Absolutely. You know, the theme I've had all year is that we are now investing for end of cycle dynamics. And when you enter that end of cycle period, what you want to look at is what is happening to the change in the rate of growth. And, and there are three key line items that you're going to want to pay attention to. Um, one is revenues. The other is credit costs. And the third is capital return. And this year, what we're seeing is the revenue growth is decelerating. So we started high mid-single digits in the first quarter. We're entering sort of mid-single digits this quarter. We'll probably be down to low single digits by the fourth quarter. And I think that's what we're going to see in, in 19 is low single-digit revenue growth. On the other hand, you're seeing credit costs, which are right now are very benign, um, are likely to accelerate higher in 19. Um, and then I think beyond that, the capital return is going to slow dramatically. So the three variables are working against improving profitability. So I think we've seen peak profitability, and that's what these stocks are starting to reflect. 
So one thing that I'm struck by is that J.P. Morgan posted its biggest loan growth in a back-to-back period ever. Uh, And this really edified initially anyway, people's feeling of strength that basically even as interest rates rise, they're able to expand their loan book and they're able to capitalize the fact that interest rates are rising faster than how much they have to pay depositors. Why does that not, why does that not give you confidence? Well, again, uh, J.P. Morgan is one of the better in terms of execution, and and they've been investing in their businesses and showing some of the better, um, you know, revenue growth. This, I mean, for this quarter, total revenues were up five percent year over year, which is one of the better quarters that you're going to see. Um, so I have no problem with what J.P. Morgan reported. What I'm what I'm focused on is is that rate of change and growth. And, and going back to your question about loans. Yeah, they grew core loans around 6% this quarter, but they had been growing core loans at the upper single-digit range earlier in the year. So it's that rate of change that's starting to show us slowing. Over what period of time, Charles, do you believe that the banks can turn their operations to be more nimble based on where they are in the cycle right now? Because that would reflect decisions that are made now that only bear fruit six, 12 months, even 24 months into the future, if not longer? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Pim, because, because for example, PNC is getting punished today. The stock is down $6. And the reason is because they had sluggish loan growth and are only projecting low single-digit revenue growth in the fourth quarter. And, and they're falling behind the competition in some of their momentum indicators. And they're claiming it's because they're trying to be prudent in this end of cycle where a lot of mistakes are made, but they're being punished for that because they're not showing the positive operating leverage that somebody else is maybe taking more risk is. I think at the end of the day, the banks will come out of this next down cycle whenever it happens. I think it's going to happen in 19, um, the recession. Um, with their balance sheets intact, with their capital intact, and they're going to be able to, to grow day one when we come out of that recession. And there's going to be a much bigger positive revaluation of these bank stocks out of that next cycle. But going into it, there's going to be skepticism that they haven't changed their historical practices, which is always to reach for growth at the wrong time of the cycle. And that's going on, but it's going on more in the non-bank system or the shadow market banking system than it is the banking system. Charles, is there any bank right now in the U.S. that you think is a buy? Well, you know, I, I, I think we started a bear market and that the bank stocks will be down some 30 to 50 percent from their September, I mean, from their first quarter um, highs of 18, which I, I think is the peak. In other words, the top is now in place. And they'll be down 30 to 50% by the depth of the recession. So within that cycle call, no, you don't want to buy banks. Can they outperform relatively? They could, but I'm I'm not convinced that you get that change of secular leadership until you have that downturn. Um, On a trading basis, uh, I've been advising my clients, it's probably no more than another 5% downside from where we are today. And so on a trading basis, maybe you want to pick up a Wells Fargo or a Citigroup. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking about as a trader, because I, I still think that the cycle is for much bigger losses. 
Thank you very much for spending time with us. As always, interesting and insightful. Charles Peabody is the president of Portales Partners, speaking about bank earnings. We are broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host and colleague, Lisa Abramowitz. Just for a moment, imagine that you are in charge of a 153-year-old company that started life in the pulp business, a paper mill in Finland. And after a series of reorganizations, it turns out that you have remade yourself in just 12 months. Here's what happened at Nokia. In April of 2014, the company completed the sale of its mobile phone handset business to Microsoft. That accounted for more than half of the company's sales. In April of 2015, Alcatel-Lucent agreed to Nokia's $16.6 billion buyout offer. The deal closed in January 2016. It has created the world's second biggest telecom equipment company behind Erickson. Here to tell us about transformation is the chairman of Nokia, Risto Salisma. He is the author of a new book entitled Transforming Nokia, The Power of Paranoid Optimism to Lead Through Colossal Change. And he joins us here in our studios. Thank you very much, sir, for being here. It's great to be here. Tell us why you decided to write this book. Well, I believe in learning. I'm an entrepreneur by background and If you want to develop your company, every time you do something, you need to look back what worked out, what didn't work out to create a culture of learning so that people always sort of do a post-mortem after they finish a project. And this is about learning. It's about sharing the story of how to create a trusting environment, how to promote teamwork, how to promote openness, how to make bad news flow to the top quickly so that people can react to what is actually happening. We were sort of poisoned by the success of Nokia as a handset vendor. And that toxic side effect of success faces every single company that is hugely successful. And I think our lessons are worth sharing with other companies. So what's the toxic side effect? Because at its peak, Nokia was the world's largest mobile handset maker and counted for about 4% of Finland's entire economic output. How is that a poisoning factor? Because when you are at the top of the world and everybody is telling you that you are the best thing ever, you start to believe that. And when you start to believe that, you become complacent. You start paying more attention to external factors such as share price and what the analysts are writing, what the media says, rather than customers, core technology, employees, competition. And those small things accumulate and suddenly your competitiveness starts to disappear. But you may not notice because you're not paying attention to those crucial details anymore. You've been described as someone who has been motivated as much by maximum returns as by soft values. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, like many entrepreneurs, I believe that the long term is the the only real horizon. I don't follow daily share price movements at all. It may 
be two weeks between I pay attention to what the share price is. I want to build companies where employees really want to be proud of not only what the company achieves, but how they achieve that. That how thing is, is so important, and that's all about the long term. So uh, perhaps you don't pay attention to the share price, but the shares have risen more than 90% since you took over uh, in 2012 at the company. So I will say that it has done well. How do you foster that feeling, though, of pride and, and belief in the company and its purpose, especially as its purpose changes? And there are certain core elements that, that remain and survive all changes. And for example, in Nokia, as we started rebuilding and transforming the company, we went back to our values from the 90s, which sort of resonated with people because they, they remember how in the 90s Nokia grew from being completely unknown to the top of the world. And it's, it's that sentimental feeling that we are all, we humans are driven by feelings and emotions. It's not about fact only. Although I have to wonder, I mean, a big conglomerate, right? I mean, a lot of conglomerates are facing a lot of issues because they have to kind of figure out what are they, right? Mm -hmm. I and mean, we were seeing this with General Electric, for example. So, you know, belief and, and, and faith and, and a sense of pride are, go so far, but what about the skills that you need to overhaul, et cetera, when you, when you make a big yeah, shift? Yeah. That's, a, that's a good point. If you have a strong foundation of trust, which means openness, which needs, means being ready for both bad news and good news, then you can experiment. People have the courage to try out new things, even if they know they might fail, because they know that if I fail, nothing bad will happen. And when you experiment, you'll learn. And if you can do that at a rapid cycle, then you'll survive the, the unpredictable changes in the environment. Now, you just went back to school in order to fulfill exactly some of these things. Explain what you're learning at school and why you decided to do this. Yeah, like many other leaders, I was challenged by machine learning and what it can do. And like many others, I was told by my teams sort of what it means. And I learned those bullet points by heart. And like a parrot, I went out and gave presentations on the power of machine learning without understanding the whole thing at all. And then I sort of woke up that this cannot be. I, I can't tell the world that machine learning will be the key component of our future competitiveness if I don't understand how it works. And then I went back to school and I have studied programming again. I have taken six courses in machine learning programming and done all sorts of architectures. And then I created a training program based on what I now understood and tried to create content that I would have wanted somebody to tell me when I was trying to figure out what does machine learning mean for us. And this has been something of an in inspiration to our R&D people who have felt and come to me and said that I'm, I've been a bit ashamed that our chairman knows more about machine learning than I do. <laughs> so I'm now taking night courses on machine learning. And that's, of course, music to my ears. Let's, let's sign up for this. Well, the power of shame, right? If, if, <laughs> if your I'd boss knows more about your job than you do, you start to feel like you got to catch up. Risto Silisma, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you. Congratulations on your book, Transforming Nokia, The Power of Paranoid Optimism to Lead Through Colossal Change. Risto Silisma is chairman of Nokia, also chairman and founder and former chief executive of F-Secure Corporation here in our 11.30 studios. 
A Washington Post columnist and known critic of Saudi Arabia disappeared mysteriously. Turkey is accusing uh, Saudi Arabia of murdering uh, the journalist in an alleged uh, attack that was planned. Joining us now is Bobby uh, Ghosh. Bobby Ghosh is editor of Bloomberg Opinion based in London. Bobby, thank you so much for being with us. First, can you explain what we know at this point about this situation and why it's so important? Well, we know that Jamal Khashoggi about a week ago went into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to collect some papers, um, and that was the last anybody saw or heard from him. Um, we know that the Turkish authorities have been leaking to the media, both local as well as international media, that they believe that they have evidence that Jamal Khashoggi was first tortured and then murdered, and then that his body was removed from the Saudi consulate. They also have tracked the movements of a, a private aircraft uh, with 15 passengers that arrived that very day. They believe that these passengers included people who were responsible for the torture and murder. This is uh, the extent of the, the, these are the facts that we know. Um, this is important because it is, it comes while Saudi Arabia is trying to change its image in the world. The crown prince, the relatively new crown prince, um, Mohammed bin Salman, he's better known as MBS, he has been trying to change the way the country behaves. He's been trying to reform the economy, trying to change uh, many of the social uh, regulations in the country, and trying to improve its image in the world. So this comes at a time, this is this couldn't have been worse timed. Um, this uh, incident, if it is true that Jamal was killed in the Saudi consulate by Saudi officials on the orders of senior Saudi uh, figures in government, then this is not a new and improved Saudi Arabia. This is very much an old one. In fact, in some ways, it is worse than uh, the old Saudi Arabia. Bobby Ghosh, this also has implications for the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, correct? Yes, ma'am, it does, because Jamal uh, was a resident of the United States, of Washington. Um, he was a columnist of uh, Washington uh, Post, well-known in Washington political and diplomatic circles, well-liked in those circles. Um, this is important because Saudi Arabia is very important to the Trump administration. Uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, his first international trip was to Saudi Arabia. Um, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has a close personal relationship with the crown prince. Um, the Trump administration has made a big deal of the fact that they're very close to Saudi Arabia. So anything that reflects poorly on Saudi Arabia, especially since it's in, it involves a American resident, um, is going to there's going to be a splashback on the Trump administration. Bobby, it's really interesting in light of the news that we have this morning with Turkey freeing the detained pastor that President Trump and his administration have uh, argued for. And it's interesting to sort of contrast the rhetoric out of the Trump administration around that versus the rhetoric around this particular incident and that basically President Trump seems to be taking a pretty hands-off approach to this saying, yeah, well, you know, who knows? Why? Can you well, explain his this? Argument, his argument is that Jamal Khashoggi is not an American citizen, whereas the pastor, of course, is an American citizen. Unfortunately, that argument won't wash because the United States does have a responsibility uh, for somebody who was legally resident in Washington. Uh, it has a responsibility because Saudi Arabia is a major ally, and it has a responsibility as the leader of the free world, as a beacon for, for uh, free speech and uh, free expression. And, and Jamal Khashoggi uh, was... Uh, 
uh, essentially exercising his free speech. He was not, I, I, would, I think we should point out, he was not a strident opponent of the Saudi regime. He was very much uh, a part of the Saudi elite. His criticism had been quite mild. He, he supported the Crown Prince when the Crown Prince was appointed. He disagreed with some of the policies that the Crown Prince then implemented and wrote about it. That's the extent. This is not some uh, left-wing radical uh, who's hiding out in the United States and taking pot shots at a regime. Is it possible that the United States will conduct an investigation and if it does and finds something untoward that there will be sanctions? Well, uh, a number of uh, senior senators in the U.S. uh, have pressed uh, the president to do exactly that. Um, uh, Rand Paul, uh, the the senator from Kentucky is threatening to call a vote in the Senate to uh, block all American arms sales uh, to Saudi Arabia. These run into tens, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, very senior American political figures are taking this seriously. Um, the Trump administration might try to wriggle out of it, but if the uh, if the senators keep uh, pressing and keep demanding answers, uh, then I, I, I think it would be hard for the White House uh, to keep uh, avoiding it. Bobby, just real quick here. Uh, there are a number of company leaders who've already said that they're not going to attend the so-called Davos in the Desert event uh, that is upcoming because of this incident. How significantly will that gain the attention of uh, Saudi Arabian leadership? This is a very, very important, in fact, arguably even more than than uh, NGOs or human rights organizations uh, complaining about uh, what happened to, to Jamal. This is going to uh, make a much greater impact because a big part of the Crown Prince's reform uh, agenda is to bring more foreign and private invest- investment into the country if major business leaders are backing out and don't want to be associated with this event, which is a, a sort of crown jewel of the of the Saudi uh, program. That's a big deal. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Bobby Ghosh is a Bloomberg opinion editor speaking about Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the disappearance of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I should also just mention that Bloomberg is a sponsor of the Davos. In the and Desert. we are monitoring the situation. This is Bloomberg. Here to tell us more about municipal markets is Amanda Albright, municipal bond reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Amanda, thank you very much for being with us. I, I Before we get into sort of big picture, you know, trends and so on, I want to ask you about this really, in, I thought it was a very interesting story having to do with Los Angeles and what the city, what Los Angeles does with the revenue that it receives from parking fines, from sales taxes. Explain what they do now and what might happen in the future. Sure. So we had a really good story this week by reporter Romy Varghese. Um, So she wrote about Los Angeles considering um, creating a public bank. Um, It would be the first U.S. city to do so. Um, So what that means is that it would move its 11 billion portfolio um, from some of the biggest banks in the country to, you know, self-managed. It would invest in, you know, local projects and kind of, you know, seek to have more of like an ESG um, mindset rather than working with um, some banks that can come under controversy. 
That's interesting. Why would they be doing this? Is it because of that environmental, social, and governance issue, or would there also be a financial incentive? So the story talks a little bit about kind of how this effort, um, you know, first started. And so a lot of it was prompted by um, concerns about the Dakota Access Pipeline um, and work with Wells Fargo a few years ago. Um, So actually there was a big movement around public banks um, during the Occupy Wall Street time. Um, So it does sort of come from this ESG mind frame. And we do see Los Angeles being one of those cities that's, you know, very much a leader when it comes to ESG um, issues. Amanda, I want to shift gears a little bit to what happened in the past week. There were some pretty big outflows, I believe the biggest in more than a year from municipal bond funds in the United States. Why? Is this just a a rising rates kind of story? Yes. So the investors that I've spoken with, um, you know, one of them described it as simple bond math. Um, Basically, retail investors, they start seeing the losses that munis have posted. Um, They see, you know, the Fed telegraphing more rates and they get a little bit nervous about their holdings. And so they start pulling out of these funds. Um, It is something that investors keep a close eye on because retail is so important to this market. Um, And, you know, banks and insurance companies have kind of been on the sidelines after their tax taxes were cut earlier this year. Um, So these outflows are really, really important. We've seen them with mutual funds, and we've also seen them with muni ETFs. So what is going to be the likely consequence? I mean, at what point will this actually hamper or make it prohibitively expensive for uh, municipalities to borrow money to continue with projects they have planned, or we're not anywhere close to that? I mean, we're already seeing sort of the beginning stages of that. Um, The 10-year benchmark for munis is at the highest since early 2014. um, So that's pretty significant. um, And that obviously we're seeing, you know, deals that are coming in higher this year than they were last year. Um, You know, issuers have kind of had these really low um, borrowing costs. um, And, you know, we always wrote stories about how they didn't necessarily take advantage of those costs as much as they could. Um, And so now they're kind of facing this prospect of rising interest rates for the foreseeable future. Does any of this have to do with the banks that no longer see municipal bonds as an attractive investment previous to the tax reform? Absolutely. So um, one really interesting dynamic is um, the longer out you go on muni bond deals, the, the higher the yields are. And so if you look at where munis stand compared to treasuries, they're very cheap on the long end, but they're more expensive on the short end, which is where, you know, retail kind of hangs out. Um, but because banks and insurance companies, you know, face this lower tax rate, they haven't been buying munis as much. Um, so yields on the long end have already kind of risen up this year, whereas now we're seeing the short end kind of join in on on, on yields rising. I have to wonder, just going back to what Pim was talking about with this Los Angeles public bank, would that replace municipal debt as a form of financing? Would they have to borrow in the muni market? I ask this because as rates rise, I have to wonder what alternative methods municipalities are going to look to to possibly finance themselves. I think that's a great point. Um, And also the opportunity zones that we saw come out of the Tax Reform Act. Um, Municipalities are going to have to get creative with how they finance projects within their own borders. Um, You know, the Los Angeles uh, bank, you know, there's a lot to be determined there. You know, voters have to approve it, first of all. um, And there are still some questions about the cost of creating such a bank. So munis might still end up being the more cost-effective op- option. 
as far as this cre- this potential uh, bank, would that be something that would have to have like a, a federal charter, a state charter? Is there any precedent for this? Do we know? There is a, a state bank out of North Dakota. Um, so it's not fe- federally regulated, which is interesting. Um, but obviously, Los Angeles is very, very big. Um, you know, being the first to get involved with something like this, um, you're going to invite a lot of scrutiny, not only from maybe regulators, but also um, from residents living in that city and wanting to make sure funds are used appropriately and and matters like that. Amanda Albright, really, really great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 